Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the cloud problems every agency's facing and maximizing the government's buying power to drive change. It's Thursday, October 27th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs has an acting chief data officer. Lisa Rosenmerkel will take the job on an acting basis when Schmendra Paul leaves the agency at the end of the month. Rosenmerkel joined VA last month as deputy CDO from the Treasury Department. Paul is moving to the Energy Department to become the Assistant Inspector General for Cybersecurity Assessments and Data Analytics. The National Archives has hit the 200 million page mark in its records digitization effort. That puts the agency at about 40% of its goal to digitize 500 million pages by 2026. NARA's digital strategy for the 2022 through 26 timeframe sets a goal of digitizing 85% of its holdings by the end of that period. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents on a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. Learn more at sfdc.co slash psh. Federal agencies have four main challenges to deal with in their transitions to cloud computing. Those challenges are keeping agencies from realizing cloud's maximum potential. Jennifer Franks is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It's great to talk to you again. How did you come to these four pillars, these four elements of cloud computing that you want agencies to pay attention to? Welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me again. Um, So we've been doing work in this cloud computing space for quite some time. And the work that we've been doing really just uh, seemed to tell a big story over the last few years of just compiling how much money we've been spending in this billion dollar industry of IT and cybersecurity. And, you know, securing cybersecurity is a big story that we've been telling in a lot of different spaces So, you know, cloud computing is just this real big story. So securing cyber, um, procuring the cloud services, maintaining the secure workforce, and then tracking costs and savings, you know, really just telling that composite story of, is it just saving money? Those are the the four elements that we just, you know, compositely saw was really needed to just cumulatively tell this very important story of all the reports that we've been telling over the years, we just saw those are the four major challenge areas that the government was facing. So we wanted to shed some light in this snapshot that we produced last month. All right, the first one is ensuring cybersecurity. And you're right, in December 2019, we reported that while all 24 major federal agencies were participating in FedRAMP, Many agencies continued to use cloud services that weren't authorized through the program, and you list four ways that you found that that was a problem. What's kind of the essence of the issues that agencies are having with using non-FedRAMP-approved cloud services, Jennifer? Good question. So the, the biggest thing here is agencies were not using security plans that really 
address required information or their control implementation procedures. And they were not um, summarizing the results in their security assessment reports and identifying the control tests as required by their various federal um, policies and procedures. And they were not using the required information from their remedial action plans. And then they were not adequately preparing the cloud service authorization agreements um, per the requirements of the Fair Ramp Authorization Program Office. So all of these composite requirements combined, they just were not following the guidance that was set forth by the program offices. So, and those were some of the more important procedures that were going to be needed for them to be following the orders and the guidance that were going to be needed for us to make sure that they were, you know, along with the guidelines that were being set forth for us to ensure some of those adequate protections were in place. You're right. Uh, we found that one cause of these weaknesses, the four that we talked about a moment ago, was that FedRAMP's requirements and guidance on implementing these control activities were not always clear, and the program's process for monitoring the status of security controls over cloud services was limited. That's on FedRAMP, it sounds like. That's not on the agencies. Absolutely. That was on FedRAMP. And we've actually been, you know, working with OMB over the years to, you know, inst institutionalize some additional guidance for the agencies to be able to follow some ad additional policies and procedures. And they have actually been doing that in subsequent um, years. And there has been additional guidance, you know, that has come out and no additional reports from GAO, but there's actually some additional um acts that have come out. There's a new um, set of legislation that the Congress has actually passed for us to now follow up on. It's actually new. It's coming out this actual fiscal year, and we'll have some new authorizations to actually follow up on what OMB has actually done in this space for, for the government agencies to follow. The second big issue is an acquisition issue and not so much a technology mm -hmm. issue. Procuring cloud services and you write an important part of procuring cloud services, incorporating a service level agreement into the contract. What did you find over time? The first piece of work that you cite here was back from 2016, so six years ago. What mm -hmm. have you found since that work began up to the present day about how agencies are doing at doing that, Jennifer? So that's a good question. And, and, and to be honest, is some of the same stories still exist. So the agencies are still having a hard time making sure that what's in the contract service level agreements are adequately being managed and adhered to, you know, are those um, service level agreements still monitoring for adequate compliance? Do the agencies have an adequate handling on being able to manage the data that's um, being monitored by those contractors um, and being maintained and adequately controlled um, are they adequately secured? Are the metrics from those cloud service providers meeting the minimum service level agreements? Um, are we being able to see that the data that needs to be managed and secured by that agency, are those adequately, um, is that data being adequately secured by that vendor? You know, are, are, there, are there being enforceable consequences? Um, if there's a disaster, um, are there adequately continuity operations in place? Is that being communicated to the agency? If there is a service interruption, is there a data breach? How is that information being communicated to the agency? 
You know, are those um, in the service level agreements? How is continuous monitoring being, you know, adhered to? Um, how is information just being um, communicated um, at all times within that service level agreements? And what we found over the years is that a lot of the information is not being adequately communicated to the agencies. And then what we cite even in this two-pager is that there's just a large range of, of enforceable consequences and penalties that are just not being adhered to for these service level agreements. So if data is being compromised or if these security infractions are being um, minimalized, you know, what are the service level agreements? Are we breaking contracts? Are these vendors being um, penalized for not adequately protecting our agency's data? So those are the types of, of things that we are having to make sure that we are following in these service levels agreements. The third item that you write about as a challenge is maintaining a skilled workforce. And to their credits, I think every chief information officer that I talked to over the last several months has listed workforce challenges of various sorts as the number one challenge that he or she is dealing with uh, moving forward, not specifically related to cloud computing necessarily, but I think people have come around to the idea that everybody has uh, workforce as a component of their work and, and not just technology. Um, you cited three agencies, Coast Guard, Department of Defense, Department of State, um, that had problems with strategic plans in those agencies relating to cloud computing skills. How widespread do you think that is? Did you is it just that you happened to look at those three, do you think, and found issues? Um, what do you think the landscape looks like, Jennifer? That's a good question. So the answer is yes. We just happened to be doing separate engagements at each of those three agencies. But this is a larger, wide-scale, government-wide um, issue that is, is impacting all of the federal agencies. But many of these efforts, at least Coast Guard and the Department of Defense, those um, reviews were covered in the NDAA, so the National Defense Authorization Acts. We were mandated to do those reviews. And the Department of State's effort was covered in a request by a, a committee. But with these reviews, we found very similar findings in that there was a lack of strategic planning across these different um, institutions of, of how to adequately plan for a workforce in general that would be prepared to cover from an on-prem environment of adequately um, preparing for the, the necessary workforce that would be covered um, from um, being able to manage the necessary security controls in the environment to then being able to manage the, the necessary controls that were being migrated into being able to be responsible for cloud strategy in the cloud environment and helping those cloud service providers that would then be managing the agency's networks and the security controls that would be needed in this next level of environment protections just having a strategy in place and being able to then conduct regular evaluations and the customer service experiences and all of the necessary gaps in the security controls and um, the communication plans just were not in place at each of these various agencies. So we kind of um, recommended similar um, things at these various organizations. And, and it just starts with having to establish and development processes where you need to just have the strategic plans in place and then have some tracking and reporting mechanisms 
for identifying what's going to be needed and then having a workforce uh, plan, a strategy in place, and then starting to figure out what's going to be needed um, and then starting to report and track your, your, your necessary needs. And yes, the workforce issue has been plaguing a lot of us for decades, but kind of tracking what's going to be needed was where we were going in all of these reports. But this is a systemic, a systemic government-wide issue. So a lot of these findings can definitely be taken and applied government-wide. So a lot of the agencies can just take them and think about the strategies that they're going to be needed to implement in their own environments. Yeah, the message I read between the lines on on this particular one was that the the recommendations were similar enough that if I'm at another agency, I I go I probably should look at the same things too. All right, the fourth absolutely the fourth <laughs> item that you write about uh, is tracking costs and savings. And this is a subject of debate, it strikes me, across the federal government community right now, Jennifer, not to the work that you did, but for a long time at the beginning of the cloud revolution, um, a lot of people talked about how much money they were going to save. And over time, that had, that conversation has kind of shifted. Well, we're not going to save a ton of money in the cloud, but it's going to result in efficiencies and other benefits to mission operation. And I'm not informed enough to be able to say one side or the other, but it strikes me that for that you're getting at the heart of that. You write, federal agencies were often using inconsistent data to calculate cloud spending and weren't clear about the costs they were required to track. It sounds like they don't have the information that they should have to be able to make those decisions or make those discernments. Am I reading that the right way? You read it the right way. And to be honest, they don't have the necessary requirements in place to adequately track. And, and the thing about the government, maybe even other industries, but I only know about the federal government, given that I've, <laughs> I've had my whole career here. Unless there's adequately policies in place for us to do something, we're not going to necessarily carry out the A through Z of compliance. And a lot of what we found in this report that we actually conducted is that many of the federal agencies were doing their best to track savings because why not track what you are able to track? And then of, of the review that we conducted, um, several of the agencies actually were finding there was significant savings. And um, about 13 of those agencies actually said they saved almost $300 million. But what if there was more savings? Because they did not have actual metrics in place, the formalized metrics in place to actually um, be able to track what it is they were actually saving and able to um, report on, they did not actually have these processes that were actually able to really formalize a plan and, and to really conduct adequate assessments to show the efficiencies that could have been in place for their various organizations to, to really realize the benefits of these savings across their enterprises. And what's what we really would be helpful for us is to see that there are actual cost savings that could help the government. to And, and this would actually help us to enforce some of these efforts and move us further along the on-prem to cloud environment a lot faster if we could realize some of the more efficient savings and system modernization efforts that would come 
from actually moving towards the cloud migration a lot faster. So what we've asked for is for OMB and OPM even some more guidance to be, you know, kind of formalized in this way to actually move agencies along with actually formalizing some repeatable mechanisms for agencies to actually, you know, be able to track their cost savings and implement some service level agreements across the agency so that they would be able to realize whatever investments they are making across this billion dollar industry that the monies they're actually investing are actually being invested appropriately. Jennifer Franks of the Government Accountability Office. Love this snapshot. Uh, Credit uh, to your colleague, Nikki Clowers, who worked with you on this. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. You can find a link to that cloud snapshot in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The General Services Administration sees a huge opportunity to use the government's buying power to influence sustainability and supply chain efforts. Sonny Hashmi is the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. In this highlight of his discussion with Chris Smith of AT&T, the former CIO at the Agriculture Department at ACT-IAC's Executive Leadership Conference, he explains how he'd like to leverage that power. We manage about $84 billion worth of spending for the federal government. Imagine if you can improve the, the carbon impact of that supply chain, even in a modest amount. The, the impact we can create is huge. And on top of that, like, you know, the, we, we manage the largest fleet in the country. Uh, people don't you know, always know that. But, but there's a tremendous opportunity to, so the exec, through executive order, the president has tasked GSA to uh, migrate the fleet into a zero emission posture. We've been working very, very closely with our partners at CEQ and every agency to develop those plans. And one of the important first steps in that plan is to develop the infrastructure and deploy the infrastructure that's going to be needed to power uh, and, 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 uh, and enable this uh, modern fleet. And so this is, again, this is an opportunity for creating new American jobs to reduce the climate impact and to reduce costs for the taxpayer. Uh, so we are very, very excited and leaning in. We've uh, done more v- uh, zero emission vehicle purchases in the last year than we've ever done before combined. And we're very excited about the journey. Now, having said that, there's been challenges with the supply chain availability of vehicles, limited, just the domestic uh, you know, manufacturing capacity is slowly increasing. But as we, as we continue to, like the government can make an important impact. We can, we, we can show the industry that because we have, we're such a big buyer and we are such a reliable buyer, that they can invest in the plants and the, in the manufacturing jobs that, that need to be invested in because we're going to be there on the other side with a purchase order in hand. And so we're using that buying power to drive uh, new manufacturing capacity, new technologies, whether it's battery manufacturing or battery, battery recycling. There's a lot of innovation in this space that's happening. But that beyond the fleet, what we're doing is uh, we're looking at the entire embodied carbon um, uh, footprint of the entire supply chain, right? So how do you do that? Uh, we, have, uh, uh, we have companies that we work with that have tens of thousands of products on their schedule. We're working with these suppliers and partnering with the Carbon Disclosure Project, which is a nonprofit, to start to understand scope one, two, three emission impact for the entire 
inventory of products. Everything from manufacturing to secondary emissions. And then now that we're starting to get this data back, it's very interesting for us to kind of start working very, in a very kind of thoughtful way, one-on-one -on -one with key, key providers to be able to start to reduce that impact of the overall supply chain. And that's you know, embedded carbon, in, uh, embedded carbon uh, strategies for certain manufacturing materials. PBS is doing an incredible amount of job in things like concrete and glass and, and how modern manufacturing processes can reduce a car embedded carbon in that manufacturing. Like, think of like, it, Robin likes to share this data point, and I think that many people don't know it. If you took and combined the carbon emissions of all of our fleet and all of our energy consumed in buildings, it is one, less than one half of the embedded carbon impact of all the materials that we buy. And so by just changing our practices around how we buy concrete and asphalt and glass, we can make an immense, immense difference in, in this space. So listen, we only got one planet. We have to pass it down to our children in a functioning and workable manner. This is the kind of work that we need to do now to continue to make progress in this space. And, and, and I'm very proud that uh, the work that GSA is doing, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited to play a small role in that. And two critically important um, factors for the nation, right? Sustainability, supply chain. Uh, but everything runs over IT these days. I mean, just about every portion of the supply chain, almost everything we're going to do in sustainability. Let's talk cybersecurity. So it's, it's every three to six months you, you get a top of the fold, if you still read a newspaper, but top of the, you know, top of the news headline. If it's not um, the solar winds last fall around this time, it's the Apache, you know, Log4j issue, the Dyne attack on bank, way back to the worms back um, in the, in the um, early 80s uh, and 2000s. But, you know, how, how would you say the, and each administration has a centerpiece approach to this. Uh, you know, the nation continues to make progress, but we're up against adversaries who continue to want to outrun us and outgun us. Um, how do you think the administration's doing and what role do you see uh, for GSA and FSA in particular, uh, or FAS? And, um, uh, in, in particular around this. Absolutely. So, so like, listen, uh, it's, 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 it's obvious that cybersecurity is top of mind for all of us. So, you know, we've been saying this for many, many years, but I'm very proud of the work that this administration has done from the very beginning, starting with the executive order on cybersecurity that came out last year, and most recently the M2218 uh, uh, memo from OMB, codify some of the most uh, forward-thinking uh, efforts, um, frankly, since, you know, over the last, I would say, 15 years. Like, we, we are moving the needle in a much more, much more uh, impactful manner than it's, than it's been moved in a long time. And, and the bottom line is this, right? Um, the, the days of cybersecurity by, um, you know, checklists is just, that's long gone, right? We, we, we can, we, compliance has a role to play but that's not sufficient anymore, and we need to have much more real-time dynamic engagement with, with our providers. And ultimately, software is not just something that sits on you know, a server and a data center anymore. Software is embedded in the thermostat that's hanging on the wall in your office. So software is now running the world, and trust in that software is a critical component for us to not only protect the nation, but also continue to uh, you know, d d deliver value and, and outcomes to our citizens. And so, uh, if you look at M2218, it crea creates a very clear blueprint on, on how the government and industry are going to have to up our game in how we uh, create secure software supply chains. That means that there's going to be work for both of us to do, industry and government, and therefore we have to partner. So one of the things that I want to make, uh, make a plea for with all of you today 
is that you know, as we move forward, we, wanna, we want to create sound policy that reduces the burden on your side to the extent possible, but also achieves the ultimate goal of increasing our supply chain, uh, the security of our supply chain. The rulemaking is going to start soon on the implementation of the cybersecurity EO and the uh, implementation guide from OMB. Please engage in that process. You guys are, uh, you, know, you know your organization, you know how you build software, you know what controls exist, you know software builds the materials, you know exactly where the risks are in your organization. If you engage in the process and help us think through what is the most expeditious and effective way to partner with you all, we want to do that. But at the same time, we all have to agree that the game has changed and we need to step up to the plate in a new way. And that's gonna require you to have better line of sight into where your code base is and who's writing that code, who's access to it, how that code is secured throughout that entire delivery cycle, where your CICD pipelines are, and for us to have a different thinking about real-time monitoring, real-time threat detection, real partnership, and data sharing between agencies and with industry. And so um, this is not something that's just gonna go away because you know, it was a, is it an item du jour? This is something that we have to take seriously and continue to invest in. Um, what FAS is doing is an incredible amount of work in this space. We are obviously through uh, Laura's efforts and uh, with all the great work that ITC is doing, uh, we have to make sure that when our customers buy through our procurement channels, that they have trust, that all this validation is done. So I'll give you one example. Um, in, in a completely separate part of FAS, as we're investing in new products to do charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. We've embedded cybersecurity requirements in all of those uh, procurements because all those products now, charging infrastructure, connect to the network. So do building automation technologies. So do your you know, um, uh, uh, industrial automation systems. They're all connected to the networks. And so we now have to embed expectations and cybersecurity requirements into all of those, uh, all of those interactions. Similarly, we are uh, you know, working with OMB and CISA very, very closely to make sure that not only CISA and other agencies have access to the latest technologies and tools to do cyber threat detection, bug hunts, all those kinds of things, but we're also making sure that the right policy is being created so that eventually that gets uh, promulgated through all of our con uh, uh, pro uh, contract vehicles. And lastly, there's a tremendous amount of work, some that I can talk about, some, of the, some that I can't, uh, that's going on around the cybersecurity uh, supply chain risk management. Uh, we are uh, sourcing third-party data sources, working with the intelligence community to really start to develop a line of sight into all of our providers and identify where the risks are and then working very closely with those organizations to develop strategies to address those risks. And uh, this is gonna be something that we're gonna continue to kind of make good progress in. Uh, because listen, this is in our interest to, in all of our interests, nobody wants to build, build uh, a solution or code that, uh, that has vulnerabilities in it, and we certainly don't. And so it's in all of our interest to partner on this. Um, and I think if you look five years from now and you look back, you're gonna see that uh, you know, the situation will be very, will be very different. Um, the first thing I will say, and I'll stop after that in this topic, is it's important for us to start to think about what parts of our product suites, many of uh, the products that your companies build and, and make available, are considered critical software. Uh, that definition is not always clear, although NIST has, a very good, has done an incredible amount of work to start defining what critical software looks like, but we have to be very thoughtful about uh, what that critical software is. It's the equivalent of the critical infrastructure that we rely on in our society, right? This software is embedded, it's at the network level, it has elevated access. We rely on the software to keep us secure and keep us operating. We need to make sure that we start with that subset of software first, 
make sure that we put all the right eyes on that, and then we start to scale it to other categories of software. Yeah, well said, right? It, it permeates our life, right, and having this cohesive, well-rounded, kind of constantly improving set of capabilities is critical, and I, I've been tracking, I know Chris Ingalls' work out of the White House on trying to, a, a long-running theme, trying to get industry and government to work more closely together on information sharing uh, is just critically important and the visibility that many of the companies out here have around the globe and, and sharing that to better protect the nation is extraordinary. So um, I think we one more and then maybe we'll take some questions from the room. Let's, let, let's bring it home. So another long running theme is, uh, is uh, you know, citizen engagement and, and customer experience, user experience, the XUX. Um, how do you think we're doing? Because I know we, we, we've been talking about that. We, we make, you know, one step forward. I don't want to say we have one step back when we do that or two steps back. Uh, but we're constantly talking about it. How do you think we're doing? What's the grade out there yeah. on that? Because you don't own all of it. So I think you can grade that for, you know, for what you see. Uh, and, and are we making good progress? Uh, yes, I, would, I think we're making good progress, but uh, we have a long way to go. Uh, you know, like I think we've... Um, in the government, we've always thought about, you know, deploying capabilities in a system-by-system -system fashion, and we need to look at it completely differently. We need to start from the user and pull that in, rather than building a capability and sending it out to the system. So, so at GSA, we're doing a tremendous amount of work, and I'm investing it, we are investing a tremendous amount of energy in human-centered design. And, you know, let's really start with the user, start with the problem, really understand what the user story is. What is this somebody trying to achieve? And um, we're also working with very closely with OMB and the CXEO uh, to uh, track, you know, important life events that citizens deal with every day. When you change an address, when you get married, when you, uh, you know, have these major things happen in your life and you need to engage with government, there's multiple touch points for you to go to. And, like, what we're trying to do is to identify those touch points so that we can then bring the right agencies together and build cohesive experiences throughout that life cycle. Instead of somebody having to go to figure out which agency does this part of me, hey, I just retired, do I need to go to Social Security Administration to do this, or I need to go VF to do that? Those things can be drafted and created based on the user need first. And so we are, for example, in FAS doing a whole bunch of uh, modernization, and over the next couple of years, you're going to see uh, some of the outcomes of that, uh, that effort come to fruition. But all of that is starting with what is the, who is the user, what is their need, what are they trying to do? Not just because we have a system so we need to modernize the system or we have this portfolio that we need to modernize this portfolio, but who is the user, what their interactions are, what do they need to do and accomplish, and then how do we build, pull, use that as a forcing function to pull all the other threads around data and integrations and systems and stuff behind the scenes. So CX, by the way, is also more than just systems and websites, right? It's a holistic multi-channel experience. Like, it's not just about, I went to the website, it was a great website, it's when I call the call center, do I get the right information? Did that agent have access to the backend systems to be able to answer my question more completely? When I, you know, like, go to an agency's physical presence, because that's still gonna happen too, do, do, do you have an end-to-end -end experience that is well thought out, and, uh, and, I, and I got my problem answered, I got a question answered, I got my problem solved very easily. So. The CXEO, again, like it's the first time ever, I think, where CX is one of the three pillars of the president's management agenda. That's never happened before. And so uh, one of the things I want to announce, which is very, uh, very great, just this last week, we released a new beta for USA.gov. USA.gov is a front, de front door to the federal government uh, online presence. Go to beta.usa.gov. Give us feedback. It's a complete rethink of how we think Americans want to engage with their government. It's not just about going to a website and navigating a bunch of menus and like starting to get the information. It's really rethinking 
how they want to engage. It's going to be a dynamically created environment. So depending on the time of the day, depending on who you are, where you're coming from, uh, if you go there, you will have different content that's automatically surfaced based on, based on what might be important to you. These are the kind of things that are going to lead to a better outcome. Robin mentioned yesterday the work that went into creating uh, covidtest.gov. The reason why that website was so simple and easy to use that even my grandma could use it is because a tremendous amount of CX work happened behind the scenes. Lots of A-B testing, lots of user stories, lots of design thinking that ultimately led to something that is so simple that you don't even think about having to learn how to use this thing. That's the goal. That's the goal for everything. So we have a lot of work to do. I mean, as you all know, government is not easy to deal with sometimes, and uh, we have a lot of opportunity. A highlight of a conversation with Sonny Hashmi of GSA and Chris Smith of AT&T at ELC this week. You can find a link to Sonny's entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.